0: are listening to the Fuerte Network. Bienvenidos a todos, everyone. Welcome to Migrants on Air, an immigration podcast formerly known as We Are Home Arizona. We are your hosts. My name is Carlos Yanez.
1: Karina Dominguez.
0: Danny Orona. We started this podcast back in 2021 as part of the we are home campaign in hopes for an immigration reform and a pathway to citizenship for the 11 million undocumented immigrants in the united states a lot has changed since then including a rebrand of our podcast how are you guys
1: doing well how are
2: you
0: bien, bien bien. it's been a while
2: <laughs> it's been a while glad to be back here again back in studio and uh back here telling our stories
0: i know i'm super super excited and this is our first episode of season two
2: First episode, season two, first episode under the this new name, new branding, of course, migrants on air telling exactly what we're all about right here, uplifting stories about immigrants from all over the world, and especially the ones we have homegrown here in Arizona.
0: Yeah, claro, and I think one of the important things about the season is us expanding which types of stories we tell, what areas we tell them in, and you know, just getting more of an overall look into both immigrants, their kids, and also any of those kinds of topics that that's around that.
2: We are definitely looking forward to a great season, season two. We're grateful for this opportunity. Thank you to Fuerte for opening up the uh, doors again for us to continue with, with this storytelling and, uh, you know, reaching more and more people every single week. So it's going to be a fun season. we got a lot of great guests in the next coming weeks right here. And we're starting with off with a pretty good one right now.
0: Yeah, I think for today's episode, we're talking about binationalism and living in the borderlands. And I think as someone who has lived on on both sides of of the U.S.-Mexico border, um, both sides being like the, considered the borderlands. Uh, I think it's pretty interesting, especially uh, with today's guest, who has also lived in the borderlands her whole life. Um, and I'm super excited to talk to her, have her on later. But I know before we get into that, Dani, um, I did want to ask you guys, and you, Karina, as well, do you guys consider yourselves binational? Or do you all know what the idea of being binational is?
2: That is a very interesting question to me, one that I've asked myself in the past. I haven't thought about it in a while. And uh, the way I've seen it, uh, obviously, I've never looked up the the definition of what the the term means in a political term. But being binational to me means you're representing two countries. And myself, I was born in Mexico. I was raised here. I didn't never step foot in Mexico until I was a teenager almost and uh, pretty much not uh, knowing what life was like there growing up. So growing up as an American kid. But with a culturally Mexican family that held on to most of their customs. So I would definitely consider myself binational.
0: Yeah. Got it?
1: I don't know. I think, yeah, I've also never really looked into this definition, but I think for me, I had like a really conflicting, like inner conflict with myself about considering myself like a American or something like that. I know a lot of the times when it comes to like immigrant youth or like quote unquote dreamers, it's always, oh, they're American, this is the only home they know. But I never identified with being American. I think just recently it's when I told myself like, yeah, this is my community, you know, in Maryville, like that's my community. Like I love this community. Like I love everything about like the people and I want to work towards making the community better. But at the same time, like I've never considered myself like American or anything like that. I think it has always gone back to like my Mexican nationality. But yeah, it's I think it's a really conflicting thing that I have never taken the time to actually digest. But maybe we'll do it here. <laughs>
0: yeah, let's have our No, I i feel that too. And I think everyone kind of has their own own take on binationalism and uh being bicultural. I think one of the most interesting things to me was for what I remember in Mexico, there's like American businesses. I think the North is very, very Americanized in the fact that, you know, you can find a Costco, you can go to Sam's Club. There is Jack in the Box. There's McDonald's. And tanto como eso, like you go over here in the United States, there's also Mexican businesses. There's also people speaking Spanish. There's people buying tortillas. There's people you have white people who know what sopes are like. (laughs) I think the cultural bleed on both sides of the border is there both in Mexico and in the United States and I think that's something I also want to talk about today that cultural bleeding effect that goes beyond borders because you know there is a physical land border right things that separate the movement of people but I think it's also a lot harder to separate uh cultural bleeding and and separate the the profusion of language on both sides in Mexican Spanish you have a lot of anglosismos which is like the bleeding of English into Spanish and into Mexican vocabulary Uh, but you also have Spanglish, where the bleeding of like Spanish and the bleeding of Mexican cultural, uh, different different types of, of instances where Mexican cultural goes into English. Um, so you have like parquear or yeah. instead of estacionar, you know, troca. like troca, mm-hmm. like that's stuff that doesn't exist in Mexico, but that exists in the borderlands. So I think, in my point of view, the the borderlands and the area that kind of is adjacent to the U.S.-Mexico border is very, very special, and it's something that I don't think a lot of people outside of the borderlands will understand, and I think that's one of the main things that I want to hit on today's guests is that this area is very special, and I think if you have never lived in this area, you don't really understand how how mixed the cultures are, and I think getting into it, I did want to start off by talking about a little bit about the history of, of the U.S.-Mexico border, how it developed, how both of the countries and both of you know, both sides of of the governments kind of were both involved in the creation of of the borderlands and the creation of what we kind of see here today. And I think I don't know if you guys have researched a lot into the history, but I think a lot of it does start with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. Have you guys have you guys heard of that? We glanced, yes. over, it glanced in, over it in uh, <laughs> in, uh, history. in history, oh, the, the Americanized history, of course. Yeah, no, claro. And there was a lot of stuff going on um, uh, with that war and a lot of stuff on politics. And, you know, you also had American expansion into the West. Manifest Destiny was called. And mm-hmm. sorry to give you guys a history lesson, but I think it's super, super important because after that treaty, you know, the lines between both countries were politically defined. Yeah. yeah
2: and, and it's pretty much what most Mexicans known as that. Uh, que se Mexico. que Yeah, that's as far as most people know about that. And uh, consider, you know, the el, el Presidente supposedly sold all the territories and kept all the money. All of this, of course, impossible to verify as fact because there's stories that are passed down, stories, political stories that go all the way back to who knows how long. And uh, But no, that that's as far as most people know.
0: Yeah. Do you guys know how much of the territory was sold? No. It was 55% of the Mexican territory that was like wow. given up Dang. in that treaty. So you have the states of, I believe, it was California, New Mexico, Texas, Colorado, Nevada, Utah, uh, and Arizona. So when you think about that, it kind of becomes very obvious in the fact that, you know, these states, uh, present day, like, they're present day, like, estadounidense, they're present day American. But a lot of it is still Mexican. You still see a lot of Mexican influences, a lot of the names of the streets, of the rivers, of uh, the towns are in Spanish. But I think it's also important to talk about because that treaty, after it was established... People still remained, you know, like people who were once Mexican citizens suddenly became American citizens and people on both sides were allowed to remain where they wanted to and not even talking about, you know, all of the bad stuff that happened after with denaturalization campaigns, deportation campaigns, everything that happened after. But the border of that time was very fluid. The border wasn't established. There wasn't a big-ass border wall, you know. That didn't happen until, like, the 19... I believe the 1970s. So you still had cultural exchange. You still had people crossing over without a frontera fija, like an actual, like, border wall dividing people. So, But I think that's the first time where political lines were established, saying that, oh, no, you're American, we're Mexican. But I think since so far back and even before like the nation states of mexico and the u.s were were created people have always moved there's always been movement you see it today with like the first nation tribes who settled both sides of the border who are now divided by by an actual political line but there has always been human movement there's always been cultural movement and i think that's one of the first things that comes to mind when i think of binationalism and and the borderlands people living on one side of the border who also have basically like a sister city or a sister community or a sister culture on the other side. And I think we we all kind of take part of it. I don't know how you feel, Karina, like I can't travel to Mexico, um, but I still kind of feel like uh, we live in, I guess, like the Mexicanized part of the United States because I can still find my favorite foods. Maybe I can't move into Mexico. Maybe I can't uh, travel, but I can still hear mariachis. I can still go do some of the things. Maybe I can't visit my family, but I can do things that remind me of home. And I think that's a thing especially not being able to travel
1: no yeah definitely I think places like you know Maryville South Phoenix Guadalupe all of those kind of remind us of what it's like in Mexico like I remember the first time that I went to Guadalupe I was like this is Mexico like straight up (laughs) and like you can walk it um there's so many like people that look like you the little like tire shops all of that um the carnicerias like it all looks like mexico and i think yeah i've always lived surrounded by people who are mexican or latina and i think that's all that's something also that adds to like our undocumented experience because we've had people that looked like us and for a lot of other undocumented people like they might not have grown up with that demographic if they live in in other states
0: yeah i think especially if you live in like i don't know kansas i've I've seen i've met a lot of undocumented people who are from like idaho kansas wisconsin and not to say that i feel bad for them but i feel very privileged to live like in an area where i have access to like culture um and maybe like in those areas you do have it but I guess over here, like, you're just surrounded by it all the time. Like, you have signs in Spanish. Like, you have whole areas where everyone's just speaking Spanish. Like, it's really cool. And I think the first time I visited El Paso specifically, which we'll talk about with today's guests, I was like, yo, this is Mexico. <laughs> That's my grandma's house. <laughs> that la casa de mi abuelita. The, the bardas, the, the things on the, on the windows that, that people use to, to I guess, protect their homes. or I don't know how you would describe it. Like, I was like that... That ass looks like my abuelita's house. So I think the topic of like binationalism, I think is really present in our lives. But yeah, I think it's a really special area. And it doesn't just exist at the US Mexico border. Like I wanna tell people that it also exists in other countries. There's always been cultural bleed along borders in a lot of different areas of the world. I think the other area of the world that I'm pretty familiar with is like Argentina and, and Brazil, uh, where people speak portuño Just like we speak Spanglish, people speak Portunol and it kinda of happens all over the world. And I don't think it's just an isolated thing I think it just speaks to the fact that borders here are the things that are natural like culture and language and and people move and adapt and and change and I think that's pretty special I think speaking on all of that, um, I did want to go ahead and introduce our friend, Victoria Perches. Victoria is an ASU alum, uh, is the cultural organizer lead at Fuerte, and she is originally from El Paso, Texas. Victoria, thank you so much for for coming on the show and for, for talking with us. ¿Cómo estás?
3: I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me today. Yeah, for
0: sure. I've been excited. I've been wanting to have you on.
3: No, it's an honor. I get to put on for my city, so it's such a great opportunity to be here today.
0: Yeah, no, I definitely did want to. I have a lot of questions about like where you grew up, how you grew up. How how that impacted I guess your your cultural identity and how you identify. So I guess like my first question, um, and I don't know if you, uh, Danny or Karina, you guys want to add on, but I think, um, do you feel like growing up in El Paso uh, affected how how you identify?
3: Absolutely. So El Paso is a huge part of my life. So El Paso is a huge border town. It's on the most western tip of Texas, and it touches Juarez and also New Mexico. So we have a joke in El Paso that. El Paso is actually the closer to New Mexico than it is to the rest of Texas because (laughs) the next closest city or town is Midland, Texas, which is actually just like where people get oil from. So it is really isolated from the rest. We're on a different time zone. We're on a different power grid. So El Paso really is by any means little Mexico for real. But yeah, it has definitely shaped me growing up. I would say just the culture El Paso is like Mexico, you know, everybody's speaking Spanish, you're eating Mexican food like ten- like every day out of the week. It's just such a beautiful place. Everyone is so tight-knit in the community. It's just wonderful. It's quite the place to be. Yeah, I, I don't know how to- else to explain it. It's not like Arizona at all. I feel like El Paso is like so tight-knit that everybody absolutely knows each other and... When you know something happens in the news, I feel like everybody is like, Oh, that's my Theo, or that's so and so's cousin. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just such a beautiful place where community is tight driven, um, and the cultural exchange is completely there. So, that conversation of you know, binationalism is just prevalent every day. People cross the border to go to work or oh, really? go to school, um, and you see it all the time, and it's It's such a privilege to just be around all of these people who make that extra effort to do these things just because they're able to do so. So So is it pretty
0: common to, to just cross the border every day?
3: Absolutely. Yeah. So in 2020, I was a charter school teacher on the south side of El Paso in Segundo Barrio. And the kids, I would say out of like 62 students, I would say probably 15 to 20 of them would cross the border every day to come to school. When they would cross the border, oftentimes they would be there like super early because they wanted to beat the line or they were super late. They would come in like third period. So having that conversation with them was like kind of tough because they were missing school. But I know like the extra effort they made just to come to school. So, you know, having those conversations was just so interesting about their journey, just coming to school in the morning. But it meant it made it that much more impactful. Like, you know, I need to put in extra effort like they gave me extra effort today. So... Mm -hmm.
2: So is it Mexican kids that are allowed to just come for school? Like, do they have documentation or like, how does that work?
3: So it's a charter school. So that's a different conversation, I think. But the kids were definitely most of the kids that were coming to this charter school, they were most likely behind in English. They were all ESL students. So they were catching up on how to learn English, um, which is why they probably wouldn't be successful if they were to enroll in like a public school or another situation like that which is why they came to our charter school. So it was kind of our role not only to teach them our subject areas, but also to teach them English. So a lot of them were very behind, but they would work really, really hard to learn. And it was just really awesome to see them taking that initiative on top of waking up probably like at 4 a.m., they came in not only having to learn eighth grade U.S. history about a history that like they're not even in, but they also take the opportunity to learn English as well. So.
0: That's wild. I think I would complain waking up at seven in the morning like, to go to school. I hated waking up. Yeah. So I can't imagine like waking up at four in the morning, then crossing the U.S. Mexico border, then going into El Paso to go to school. Like, I think all of that just to receive an education. I guess on on the on the U.S. side is wow. Like that's it's that's a whole journey.
3: It really is. It really is. And then you know still having to wait for their parents to come pick them up to take them over again. Mm. Yep. Those kids are. I think like we really teachers wanted to like rag on them for being late, but you there's no way you can. Like yeah, you that understand. is Yeah, you have to understand.
0: So do you think that's common like just across the whole city and because of its proximity to to Juarez?
3: Absolutely. Yeah. So I mean there's like sections in El Paso where, you know, there'll be trabajores where they'll be there like on the corners and they'll just be like, Hey, I'm I'm you know, I do roofs or you know, I do cement work or I do X, Y, and Z. People will pick them up, take them to their house, and then bring them back, and then they would cross the border again. It's a pretty common practice in El Paso where these people just have like skills and you just, you know, take them and then you pay them and you drop them back off. But it's a pretty common thing where people come over to work or to go to school, even at like UTEP. People go there from Juarez all the time. Oh, really? Yeah.
2: Well, so, so is it like, the workers that we see here in, in certain parking lots of certain stores that like the day laborers so mm-hmm. just like that
3: yeah just like that wow. except they're from juarez yeah it's cheaper to live over there mm-hmm. yeah. it's cheaper to live over there and then i'm not sure how like you know they set up with like their i don't know they don't need a permit to be doing that Um certain situations like that so it's just like a really good hustle for people who need it.
2: it get to the point where like Border Patrol even knows them. like ah, I know you'll be back at the end of the day.
3: You know what? When it comes to I actually wanted to talk about that. So when it comes to like Border Patrol and, you know, immigration specific issues, I actually moved to Arizona in 2016 at the end of SB 1070. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I had no clue what was going on in Arizona. And I know that takes a lot of privilege to say. So I'm going to publicly say that. But when I came to Arizona and I took transborder studies in college, mm-hmm. I was learning about like SB 1070 and like the fear of deportation. And never once out of living in El Paso did I ever hear people who were undocumented fear for their lives. Like never once did I hear them talk about like, oh, I'm going to be deported if I do X, Y and Z. Never. It was until I came here to Arizona and people were having those conversations where I was so confused of like why. So, I mean, maybe it's, like, safer in El Paso. I don't know. But those conversations were just not
0: wow, out there. That's <laughs> like very interesting. Like even in the news or even, like, among, the community members or anything? No.
3: Like, and even when you did see Border Patrol, they were just highly militarizing the border, like, the physical border. You would never see them, like, you know, taking anybody up or you know, having their sirens on really. It was mm-hmm. very rare unless there was like an actual person physically jumping over the border. Mm. So I'm not sure what exactly goes into that, but those conversations just were not happening.
0: That's interesting. Uh, I honestly kind of thought it was the same, like all over like yeah. so the, the, the jurisdiction line of, of them. So yeah, we're the screw ups. <laughs> so maybe Arizona's the problem.
1: <laughs> so I know that, you know, in Arizona, All right, like in Phoenix, we always hear a lot in the news about, like, talk about border towns. Mm -hmm. How is, like, the news over there? Like, do they talk about, like, border issues
3: or? So usually El Paso feels like the largest influx of migrants. Whatever decision happens, I feel like El Paso is the one to get hit the hardest. So... When it comes to, you know, making sure we have enough shelter space, that's definitely a priority in El Paso, like trying to create spaces for these migrants to come. Just because El Paso is, you know, a migrant hotspot, like we have one of the largest borders in the nation. So being able to take these up. Well, people are pretty liberal in El Paso for the most part, other than, you know, they're the world's largest military bases in El Paso as well. I don't know Mm -hmm. if you guys knew that. that. But yeah, the world. world. So Fort Bliss is one of the world's largest military bases. Yeah. Also like one of the world's largest borders. So it's a crazy place. Like El Paso is really like the craziest place. But when it comes to, you know, any decisions that are made like in the White House or national news, um, it it usually affects Ed Paso first. And since we are pretty liberal, our government systems are, we try and intake as much migrants as we can and try and see what options we have for them moving forward. But yeah, that's kind of how like those decisions are pretty much made. And it's I'm blessed to say that, you know, for the most part, the right choices are made.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Speaking there on Fort Bliss, because the first time I heard of it is when I was working at a certain... Um, uh at a certain certain migrant shelter here in Arizona, and it was a time where uh the migrant kids that were housed there, it was getting super influx like we we were like at capacity every day. we just did not have enough beds for them. I know that they converted at least a portion of Fort Bliss into house these migrant children and would be busing out these kids from Arizona over there so they can have their stay and try to get reunified with their with their family members so we know like when they arrived here obviously from ice they would arrive in chains they would arrive you know these guys like look sometimes they would like demons like with hate in their eyes dropping off these kids how were they treated over there in texas or like if if you know anything like that or at fort bliss
3: right so i mean of course we did hear like stories of you know how the migrant they would call them camps, were set up. And since there was such a large influx, they were in fact, you know, trying to find proper spaces for them. But since there was just that sudden influx, there was like correspondence in there saying like, there was a shortage of like blankets, food. There was like large shortages for them for sure. And my mom, she, she had a friend where she was actually the ones that, she was like the bus attendant for the kids and they pay really good money. But she just said that she had to stop working there because like these kids were begging her to like take them home. Wow! And those were like the, the circumstances like they were living in it was just like they were ju- they were scared. There was an influx of them and they didn't know how to take care of them. So it was a politician like spotlight for a while. Like every single national, state, local politician was trying to figure out how they can talk about El Paso, which was great because maybe we can get more resources. But at the same time, I think what was going on was they just didn't know how to take care of these people and they weren't forcing resources through this place either.
0: So I think for you, um, was it a big culture shock moving to Arizona? Is it super, super different?
3: Yes, so definitely. I think Arizona Arizona Mexicans are very different from Texas (laughs) Mexicans, but I can't even say... Texas Mexicans, because El Paso is not like the rest of Texas Mm -hmm. either. So, are they just
2: Um, Mexicans at that point? Like, I will
3: say (laughs) that El Paso has the best Mexican food. Like, I, it does not, like, Arizona (laughs) Mexican food does not compete at all. But just the culture as well. Like, I, I'm very impressed by Arizonians as well, just because the Arizona Latino population, they are very outspoken. And I think it's because of your background with, you know, having to deal with heavy politics, such as SB 1070, you know, you guys stand up for each other. And I think that's really cool. I think, you know, in El Paso, we're very traditional, like we're very small. So sometimes we're kind of taught to remain like quiet or, you know, to maybe even stay a little shameful about like our downfalls. And when I moved to Arizona, everybody is so outspoken and so like Hoorah! And like, <laughs> <laughs> I know that sounds bad, but I was just so impressed by like the the confidence to like just go out there and tell your stories. And I took that power, and I was just like, dang, this is the coolest thing ever. And yeah, it was it was just such a cool like situation. But yeah, I can definitely say we are very very different.
0: But I think speaking on that, I did want to ask like, how do you yourself like identify? Like, do you identify more like as Mexican? Like, do I identify as Mexican American? Mm. I know living like in El Paso, and from what you're telling us, it's different than what we've experienced. So, mm-hmm. just interested to see like how, yeah, how so, you like label yourself.
3: Yeah, that's a really tough question. So, my parents, you know, I'm second generation. My grandparents came over here, and I would say the. 70s Hmm. so even before there was a border wall my my abuelos came over to el paso and they just stayed there but i guess i would identify myself as mexican-american the reason being i don't like it because i don't think a hyphen should define that i'm less mexican or Mm -hmm. you know i i don't like hyphens but i have to do what i gotta do just because my dad is actually in the military as well so i actually grew up in stuttgart germany but I claim El Paso, Texas, like that's my mm-hmm. hometown. That's, <laughs> so yeah, that's why I would explain myself as Mexican-American.
0: And I think it's super, super interesting. Cause I think even like I hear it, like you're talking about like your abuelitas pozole or yeah. like different things. And I'm like, dang, that's, that's super, super cool.
3: That's right. Yeah, just like even like ingredients make such the difference. You're like, what? You would put that in there, not this? <laughs> and it's those little differences that like are like nuanced, you know?
0: Yeah. And I think culture, like besides like language and like where you're from, it's also like given through food and like your costumbres, like how you are as a person. Because I've noticed like Latinos in general, but also like specifically honing in on like people of like Mexican descent or, or Mexicans. And I see this with like my boyfriend too. Like there's just different como se dice costumbres in en English. It's like customs. I'm, okay, there you go. <laughs> there's different customs that people like keep besides like wh- however long, like whatever like generation higher they are in the US, like people keep those like customs because i don't know like the custom of like greeting everyone in a room when you come in that's a that's a latino custom like and it's something regardless if you don't speak spanish anymore regardless if like you're like fifth sixth generation people keep those types of things and like i think that's the first 20 minutes of a party that's the first 20 minutes of a party (laughs) or like talking outside of like a party for 30 minutes while you're trying to say goodbye like (laughs) All those things, it's things that people share that are outside of the realms of, like, language and, like, where you're from. And I think that's super cool and super interesting, especially in, like, this discussion of, like, binationalism and, like, wherever you're from. Like, it's kind of cool to see, like, that kind of stuff stay, like, within a person.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, when it comes to... The traditions, they never left. So, my dad, he grew up on the south side of El Paso. So, in Segundo Barrio, and they like, they have like matechines come through, and Mm -hmm. like, you know, they have their own, like, you know, traditions as well that were brought over from Mexico, but they do them as a community, as a neighborhood every single year. So, even like small things like community gatherings or, you know, meeting up for Pozole or celebrating particular holidays, that's still like very prevalent. And I don't think it's ever going to leave, regardless of how far generations it goes down, because those are the conversations and the stories that you pass down to your kids. Mm.
0: Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, no, like <laughs> no.
3: The culture, culture is pride, and I don't think like it'll ever leave.
2: Uh, so uh, we've talked a lot about the dual cultures and everything, and how most of people keep their customs and their and their um, and their Mexican culture or uh, like or their country's culture right there. So, is in El Paso, is there any pressure at all to like assimilate more into American? culture? culture for lack of better or or Americanized way of thinking? Or is it just everybody come as is and you're able to like live your life the way you lived it in your country?
3: Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I never once felt like I was forced to assimilate to be anybody I didn't want to be. When it comes to, you know, people coming from over the border and deciding to settle over in El Paso. they there's really not a big change to be quite honest with you. Everybody speaks Spanish, even like you go to the store, legal offices, um, any professional building, it's kind of a requirement to get a job in El Paso that you know Spanish. So more so it's the other way, like for people who are coming from different parts of the United States and want to settle in El Paso, it's kind of a requirement that you understand Spanish. Aprende español. Yeah, you have to know Spanish to survive in El Paso. You, you have to or at least understand it because um, someone is going to come up and ask you something in, in Spanish and you have to know what they're talking about.
0: Wow. I think going along with that, too, I'm pretty interested because you said that um, El Paso is pretty like democratic and pretty liberal and like the policies and how like the city itself treats migrants is very different from. How Arizona has historically treated people. How do you think that happens? Like, because I know um, Texas is a very red state and a very like conservative state. So, is it super different? Like driving outside of El Paso, and uh, is, is the culture different? Like, how do things change when you go outside of the city limits?
3: Yeah, no, that's a great question. So El Paso is considered, you know, pretty democratic. We've been democratic for a really long time. Um, The other larger cities in Texas are also considered democratic. If you take a look at like the hotspot map, you know, the big one they show around election time, you see the blue spots like San Antonio, Dallas, El Paso, and even Austin sometimes. Austin's wishy-washy, but (laughs) you come to these conclusions that, you know, the big cities are pretty democratic, but El Paso being the most. The reason is, is because a lot of people who can vote in El Paso, um, they are, you know, pretty, they understand the struggle of immigration and the progressive immigration policies are coming from the Democratic Party for the most part. Well, for most of the part. Who are we kidding? Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, those conversations are being held by the Democratic Party. So that's who we support. Um, Even when it comes to our local elections, you see people on all blue tickets, literally the whole thing, just like a blue ticket every single time you go and vote. Although there are like conservative values in El Paso, you know, due to like traditional things or, you know, people who are. Against border culture, I don't understand why people would be against border culture living in a border city. But some people are anti-immigration as well. But the big conversation, of course, is just remaining democratic. And I think our city is definitely the most progressive, especially you know with Beto O'Rourke coming out of El Paso. So I'm very excited for this next election cycle mm-hmm. to see where it's going. That's I keep my my voter registration in the state of Texas for that reason because it's important to me to see change in Texas in specific because I love my hometown so much. So, you know, when it comes to the privilege of voting, like, you know, you have to take it seriously. You have to go out there and vote with your community in mind. And I know I am.
0: (laughs) That's dope. And I'm super proud of you for for repping like your your hometown and like keeping your community in mind. But just uh, thank you so much in general for for sharing your stories with us and sharing your experiences. Mil gracias, I super appreciate it.
3: Of course, of course. Thank you so much for having me today. Yeah, claro. Thank you. We need to have you back. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. Let me know. Let me know. We have lots of conversations to have. But thank you for having me.
0: Thank you. Migrants on Air, formerly known as We Are Home Arizona, is a Fuerte Network production in association with Frecuencia Alterna and Orona Multimedia. I also want to go ahead and formally thank everyone involved in the making of this episode. Our hosts, Dani Orona, Karina Dominguez, and myself, Carlos Yones Navarro. Our guest, Victoria Perches. Graphics for this episode were done by Karina Dominguez. Theme song for our podcast, is Crazy Like That, by Lo-Fi. Production and editing were also done by Karina Domínguez, Dani Orona, and Jesus Vásquez. Make sure to follow us on Spotify. And for this and all other Fuerte content, make sure to log on to fuerte.org and sign up for our mailing list. And mil gracias y hasta la próxima.